or somebody that has low blood pressure as opposed to high blood pressure or very low heart rate, you know, people that if, if they get up quickly, they get lightheaded. Those, those can all be signs of like a, a low metabolism, even if they aren't overweight, they're not gaining weight. Because um, on a certain level, even the ability to store fat is a metabolic process. Everything having to do with health is linked to the metabolic rate. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 50. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, folks. Welcome back to the podcast. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. I got a few things first. Head over to my podcasts page, culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts. And from there, well, there's just all kinds of resources. You can follow me on a variety of social media links, including my Eating Liberty Facebook group. We've got Liberty folks in there and cooks and bakers. The only thing we're missing is you. From that same podcast page, you can support the show and follow the show in a few other ways. Subscribe to my YouTube channel, make a donation and support the show with PayPal, Bitcoin, or Patreon. And at the Patreon, I've got a couple of different levels and sticker or a mug for those different levels. Speaking of coffee mugs, you can purchase a coffee mug from my Cranky Without Coffee mug store, linked, of course, on the podcast page, as well as sign up for my newsletter and download a copy of my free muffins e-cookbook, Foolproof Muffin Recipes, which work every time. Just give me your email address and I'll send a few emails or so a week. The last way you can show your support is by clicking over to your favorite podcatcher, such as Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, and leave a five-star review and a positive comment. Those actions move the show up so more people can find it. Folks, for the month of September, Savory Spice has created some great deals, including a tiered savings sale. Save 15% off your order when you spend $60 or more. Savory Spice also offers free spice samples with orders placed on Monday through Thursday. Savory Spice also has a spice kit starting at $6.95, which contains themed spices and recipes for comfort meals or Mediterranean night. Click through with my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash savoryspice, and check the website for details. Remember, these deals last all of September, so click through to culinarylibertarian.com slash savoryspice and stock up for the fall. My guest today is Kyle Mamonis. Kyle's making his second appearance after his first visit on episode 14. Back then, we talked about sugar and fat in the diet. Today, we're going to up the ante, so to speak, and talk about metabolism, what it is, what it does, and how to help it help you, and what to do if it is low. We also talk about how to navigate the sea of misinformation online, which can have a serious result of giving the browser the exact wrong information. Kyle is a PhD in nutritional science 
from Rutgers and has been in the nutrition and biochemistry field for a few years. Welcome back, Kyle. Thank you for joining me again on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Mm, Thanks for having me. So you are making a return visit. And just as a quick reminder for people who may not have heard your first episode or have just found the show, a quick bit of your background, if you would. Uh, My background is that, let's see, I currently work in biochemistry, but I did a PhD in nutritional science after a long journey of getting into extreme diets, whether it's like vegetarian diets, raw food diets, uh, high carb diets, low carb diets, all kinds of diets. And then I wanted to study that formally, uh, which I have done at least a little bit of. So today we're going to talk, well, let me back up a little bit. When we talked last, we spoke about sugar and fat in the diet and the effects that those two things have on the body. One of the things that sort of becomes clear when you talk about body nutrition is that the body is a vastly complex system of systems, so to speak, and sugar and fat don't operate in a vacuum. So let's add one more ingredient to our mix of sugar and fat, and let's talk about metabolism. Maybe <laughs> easy to ask, hard to answer. What is metabolism, and what does um, it do? There's a uh, different people mean different things by that word. So some people mean, you know, like a, if a person says, "Oh, my metabolism is slowing down," like they're gain, you know, they gain weight more easily or something like that. And then uh, you know, somebody that works um, with, uh, cells, you know, in, in a lab, they might call something metabolism, like the way that their cells process whatever reaction they're studying. That's like the the metabolism of those, uh, molecules. So it can mean anything in between there, but as far as human health, um, I guess the best way to put it would be it's getting the energy from food that we eat. Um, using oxygen, uh, which is why we have to breathe and turning that oxygen into carbon dioxide and in the process, getting the energy out of these food, food molecules for our use. I remember years ago when I (laughs) actually had some level of physical health, uh, doing both aerobic and anaerobic exercises, does that vernacular translate into the function of metabolism being an aerobic thing or is there another word for it uh yeah a little bit um that's that's another case of the words meaning slightly different things in in that context in the exercise context but our cells and all other animals and plants and some microbes the bigger ones like fungi they are aerobic metabolizers we have an aerobic metabolism and then things like bacteria uh very very small things they have an anaerobic metabolism so they don't use oxygen or at least they don't use it in the same way they don't take things like sugar or fatty acids and turn them into co2 uh the same way that we do so in that sense and that was a big um that was a big advance in life. So the amount of energy that you can get doing it the way we do it is um, like an order of magnitude or a little bit more than the kind of primitive bacteria metabolism. And uh, 
we can still do some of that as well, which, uh, you know, when, when you say you're exercising or you're lifting weights and your muscles start to burn and you're producing that lactic acid, you have outstripped your muscles ability to keep up with the aerobic metabolism and you're getting into, you're in an anaerobic state where you're burning sugars in the way that a bacteria does and creating lactic acid. And that's where that burning comes from. So, um, we're kind of like, we have another system on top of that to get a lot more energy out of food molecules than bacteria do, but it's a little bit slower of a process as well. So the, the people who are engaged in weightlifting and possibly, um, distance running or any other kind of maybe endurance sport of a kind are going to end up, we hope, being informed enough about how to utilize those different stages for their own personal gain. Yeah, well, I guess the goal would be to stay, um, to keep up with, it's kind of like people that live in altitude and say if they're like a jogger and then they visit their family at sea level and they can jog a lot easier because um, they can, their ability to use oxygen has been turned up a little bit from their lower oxygen environment where they're used to. So it's, it, there, you can kind of get like that, but um, there's no way that, I mean, the point of, uh, in weightlifting, you want to get into the anaerobic state because that's what uh, signals the muscle to, to grow. The aerobic state would just be normal walking around use. So metabolism is the thing that is turning the food we eat into the energy our body needs. And so the function then is it's, it's giving us energy. Right. Yeah. So I guess we can talk about, uh, I'm, I'm sure you and everybody else will remember the phrase, the power house of the cell, the mitochondria. Yes. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's our uh, secret weapon. The bigger cells, the more advanced than bacterial cells. Uh, we have this thing and that's what takes the energy, you know, the high energy molecules in food that we get all the way, oxidizes it all the way into um, into carbon dioxide, not on like, um, not on like the reaction of an internal combustion engine. It's just that, uh, we do it with proteins and, and things in our tissues rather than an engine. Uh, but it's, you know, it's a similar amount of energy that's released, um, just over a different amount of time and over different materials. Kind of like if you just blew up a bomb or blew up a car, you're going to get every pennies worth out of the gasoline in the, in the uh, tank, but it's not going to be very useful all getting released at once like that. So what we have though, is uh, what's called an energy currency, ATP. And pretty much everything is set up to have this, it's just a constant streaming where these molecules are modified a little bit, depending on what they are, you know, different types of sugars, different types of fats. Um, they get either more or less processed depending on what they are. And then they're brought into the mitochondria and sent through this constant streaming system where they're stripped of high energy electrons. And that, ener that, that process creates the energy to make this ATP that then is released into, into the cell and, and is then broken down itself to be replenished again. And that's what gives the energy for the cell itself to work. So 
it's a it's like a streaming system it's like a constant a bunch of little power plants everywhere and uh i guess the goal is to have that system work as efficiently as possible okay well that makes sense so i want to come back to this stuff i remember too but i wanted to i, I think in, in trying to learn about metabolism to ask some cogent questions I, I found out that I know next to nothing about metabolism, but one thing came up that it seems is important in how this very complicated system works, and that is a hormone. So is that accurate? And if it is, what is the simplest term or how can you how can you describe a hormone so that, well, I can understand it? Okay. Uh, hormones are signaling molecules. So if everything in the body is basically either um, energy storage or something that produces energy, that you know extracts energy from energy storage, or something that signals to the cells to either turn up or down energy usage, energy production, a couple other things, and hormones are the they're a broad category of molecules that send out messages to other cells. So unlike a cell that would be, say, telling itself to do something, this is when one cell makes a molecule, sends it out, usually into the blood, and it will go to other cells and signal for them to do something. So under the heading hormones are the steroids. So a steroid is a type of hormone. Uh, and then there's other types. Steroids are... are um, they're made from cholesterol. They're cholesterol derivatives. So it's it's this whole family. Um, that's why the name at the end, sterol, cholesterol. It's a sterol and then a steroid is oh. uh, a specific type of derivative from that. And then there's hormones that are proteins. So okay. let, let me cut you off for one second. So, so cholesterol is a steroid, but do we produced. I, I don't want to get caught in the weeds of, of vernacular. Do we create or produce other kinds of steroids? Are there more of them naturally occurring in our system? Well, as far as our system goes, we produce all of our steroids from cholesterol. And that cholesterol can come from the diet, or it can be made uh, in our cells from other materials. But plants have alternative sterols that are a little bit different. And that's why, you know, plants, plant foods are cholesterol free. They don't use the same initial backbone to make their steroid type signaling molecules, but they do have molecules that are in other ways similar and just built on a different backbone, which is why a lot of people talk about plant, plant steroids or plant sterols or uh, phytoestrogens things that, because estrogen is a steroid, so uh, plants have things that can mimic uh, our steroids in the body, and you know, people say, maybe that's not a good idea, or maybe they'll block the action of our steroids at certain concentrations. This whole part, I'm not sure that if I ever knew it, I didn't know it quite so concisely, and that was just fascinating stuff, but that's for another show. So you mentioned a minute ago, and, and I want to get back to this a second. So when when we just folks are, I'm not sure metabolism is a 
popular topic, but every once in a while people will say, as you said, oh, my metabolism is slowing down, or I have a, I have a naturally high metabolism, and I actually I knew a guy who was as tall and thin as a beanpole and lived on cigarettes and peanut M&Ms and never seemed to gain an ounce. Mm -hmm. So now I know that there's what we see on the body may not reveal the truth of what's going on inside. For all I know, he could have been just, just tons of internal fat that I couldn't see. But as far as him still wearing a size 28 pant with the 34 inseam, mm -hmm. the guy never changed. So there's, there's, you know, what we see, and then there's the Karen Carpenter, what we know. So that's a different thing. But can, so our metabolism rates, this is almost obvious on his face, our metabolism rates different person to person. And I suppose more importantly, can we and how can we alter them to our benefit? Um, yes. So there's a bunch of different ways to measure that. Uh, the initial discovery of, well, the, the creation of the unit, you know, the calorie, the calorie unit that was devised uh -huh. by researchers that did what's called bomb calorimetry, which is where you, you know, like the internal combustion engine, you just burn food and measure the heat that's released from it. And so the ca a calorie is a heat unit that you get from the food. And of course, in our bodies, we don't burn things, but it's a similar sort of process. And and the amount of energy that's released is is uh, comparable. Now, for the metabolic rate, there's something called indirect calorimetry, which is where you hook up somebody to a breathing apparatus that measures how much oxygen they're breathing in and how much CO2 they're breathing out. And by measuring their oxygen consumption over time, that's one of the ways that people will measure the metabolic rate. And that's usually normalized to lean mass because fat mass has a very, very low uh, consumption of oxygen. It doesn't, it doesn't have much metabolism compared to lean mass. And so, yeah, over time, your, that basal metabolic rate can change and certain things can cause it to you know, certain disease states can cause it to, uh, to go up or down. And as far as your friend with the, so he was, would you call him skinny fat then? <laughs> well, visually he was almost unhealthily skinny. He was just, it was like six foot four and I'm not kidding. He was, mm -hmm. he was a pencil. Yeah. So there's two different, as far as that's concerned, there's two main ways that our body stores fat. And the one more inert and I guess, yeah, well, basically healthy way is called subcutaneous fat. And so subcutaneous means under the skin. So it's between the skin and the muscle layer. And that's usually like, you know, the fat in your butt is mostly subcutaneous fat. So if somebody sliced into your skin, it gets a little gruesome, but we're talking about biology here. <laughs> if, uh, you know, if you were to do, um, you know, an autopsy on somebody, there's some fat that as soon as you cut into the skin, you can see the fat. And then there's a second storage depot of fat called visceral fat. And to that, you have to cut through the muscle wall. So this would be a more, a deeper storage. And that fat is more metabolically active in the sense that it's, 
like when you're in a state where you're releasing fatty acids from your fat stores for energy, they'll come out of visceral fat sooner. Visceral fat is more accessible. So if somebody has a certain condition that causes them to store some fat, but they store more visceral than subcutaneous, they can look skinny, especially in the extremities. Like they might have a little bit of a belly, but they'll have a small butt, skinny arms and legs, you know, not too much in the, in the neck or the face. Um, as opposed to imagine the opposite being like a sumo wrestler where they just have, you know, that you can get, you can get those sumo wrestler fat suits and bump into each other. <laughs> they just have a layer of <laughs> basically blubber uh, around their entire body. And that type of fat storage is actually more healthy than the other type um, in terms of its correlation and comorbidity with things like heart disease and diabetic symptoms and all that stuff. So visceral, the one we probably can't see is the more, I want to avoid scary words, but the more dangerous of fats. And that's really, that's, <laughs> that's an yeah. alarming word. Dangerous. Oh my God. It's, but, it's mostly the, like the belly fat. So if you get enough visceral fat, it usually, it's called visceral because it goes, it surrounds the viscera, which are the, the name for the organs. And so as it builds up enough, eventually it pushes out. And if you have a ton of visceral fat, it'll manifest as a, as a big stomach. So you can imagine somebody with just a, a big pot belly, but not a lot of fat on the rest of their body. They're highly visceral. Whereas the sumo wrestler body type has more subcutaneous fat stored. Well, I'm, I'm curious about two things without getting too far into the weeds in either one of these things. The, the fellow, well, we assume the person with the pot belly and say it's a rather big pot belly. I would have, I, I can sort of imagine that aside from the work of carrying that around every day, it seems to me that that would be putting some pressure on the viscera, causing probably some problems with basic bodily functions, not just in excretion, but just in making the body happy. And then to the sumo wrestler, is is that a, well, this is dangerous territory. Is that a cultural thing that the fat is subcutaneous versus visceral? And is there a way to make the body deposit fat one um, way and not the other? Yeah, it's it's not at the level of that there's a pill or anything you can take for it. But what sumo wrestlers do is they work out a lot and then they eat a big meal, usually tons of rice and some other things. And then they go to sleep. They'll take naps after working out. And something about that regimen of eating a lot, going right to sleep, and then working out, it keeps their metabolism high, but they're overeating. So they store fat. And they, so they still have actually a, a rather healthy metabolism as compared to somebody who's gaining weight because their metabolism is slowing down, but they're still overeating. And I guess they're not using enough of those calories to build muscle or something. I don't know. Um, it, it could also be some kind of genetic thing, but, um, in terms of the, how, how people build up visceral fat, it's usually associated with things like insulin resistance. So as you start to lose the ability 
to signal to the body that there's enough energy. The fat cells uh, in the in the visceral compartment will basically get the wrong message and they'll take up uh, fats in a way that is not appropriate and other other things going on like maybe a satiety effect of having enough energy so you'll be more hungry and it just kind of builds up over time. Uh, there's also a, a gender difference. So women tend to have more fat in their butts and hips and breasts than men, you know, we hope. And um, that seems to be controlled at the level of hormones. Um, there was a popular hormone years ago, leptin, which, yeah, in the 90s, it was discovered and yes. that was going to be the panacea of curing obesity and everything. But it ends up that it actually doesn't work except for very, very rare cases of people that have a serious mutation in that, in the leptin gene itself. But for people that are just normally obese or normally diabetic, they tend to be leptin resistant the same way as insulin resistance works. So giving them leptin doesn't really work, but there's a difference in the way leptin works between males and females. And, you know, on average, and there's always differences in between individuals, but on average, a male that's gaining weight will gain, will be more resistant to gaining fat in the subcutaneous compartments. So their arms and legs and butts will gain fat slower than women. Women will tend to gain fat there faster and have a harder time losing it, but men will gain more visceral fat. So you're more likely to see a man that's looks lean, except has a belly. And as compared to a woman who has more, I guess, evenly distributed fat along her body. And I'm not aware of too, too much people can do about that. Um, the, the subcutaneous fat, you know, like baby fat, <laughs> uh, you know, babies are obviously not, right. Yeah. you know, their metabolism is not slowing down um, in the way that, you know, you, we, we think of like an older person who's gaining weight. So they have that fat for a different reason. So the hormones that are driving th them to have fat, you know, that fat storage, which I guess evolutionarily is in case there's food scarcity, you know, you don't want babies to be real thin if they miss a meal or two for them to starve. So they have this extra fat as like a layer of protection, um, a few meals in there. And, you know, what's driving that is a totally different thing than what's driving, you know, say uh, a 50 year old guy who was kind of lean his whole life. He didn't really exercise that much. And then all of a sudden he starts to put on, put on weight, sort of living the same lifestyle because things are slowing down. Well, let's, I wanted to touch back on something you mentioned and I want, uh, you talked about diseases. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I think this is another, just in probably hold the episode, but can our diet cause our body to think it has disease-like symptoms and therefore that diet alters and efficient functioning of our body? Um, I don't think I'd word it that way. I would word it that, you know, the diet. So let's see the ways that diet could affect, say something like metabolism. Uh, one really easy way. So in terms of science, the things that happen quickly, acute things, they're easier to study, you know? So like if somebody, you know, say, um, cyanide poisoning, that's very well understood because it's just a really fast thing that happens, right? Uh, people know what parts of the cell are poisoned by cyanide that causes you to die. 
Now, something that could say make you prone to a heart attack in 40 years, that's a lot less clear because it takes a really long time. You know, obviously it's, a, it's these chronic conditions are less understood, but something that's really well understood and gets to metabolism and how important nutrition is are vitamin and mineral deficiencies. So all of the processing steps that take food molecules, high energy food molecules and convert them into energy for us, they use enzymes. And just about all of those enzymes have a cofactor. And so a cofactor is if you can just imagine, it's like the enzyme, because enzymes are big. So if you think of like, say, a piece of glucose, one glucose, one sugar, that will get processed by an enzyme. And that would be sort of like one person going inside of an enormous skyscraper. Those would be like the relative sizes. And then the cofactor. In this case, the person is the glucose. Yes. So okay. much, much, much bigger. Um, and the, the, the cofactor might be, say, the door in the skyscraper that lets people in and out. Now, imagine that the buildings that are doing this processing of these people, they don't come with doors. So they have like single use doors or um, they, it's like a post-processing, like the building is prefab, it gets dropped in, the people are there, and then you have to have these doors. Those are like vitamins and minerals. Sometimes the vitamins and minerals um, bind to the enzymes that they're working with pretty tightly. So it becomes like sort of one thing. Uh, other times they have a, a transitive relationship or they might not even touch at all, but they have to be close. Uh, but basically it's like a tool that the enzyme uses. So like vitamin, um, the B vitamins, for example, they'll complex with, with these enzymes to do their reaction. So if you're deficient in these uh, vitamins, then your body is making the enzymes that it needs to do a reaction. And that becomes a bottleneck. And whatever the symptoms are, you know, whatever the main reactions that that vitamin or mineral is a cofactor for, whatever they are, that will dictate what happens to uh, as the negative symptom of that deficiency. But pretty much all of them are involved in something that goes along with energy metabolism, because energy metabolism is pretty much the central thing of the whole, the whole works. So you could easily just through a really severe vitamin deficiency, lower your metabolic rate such that, uh, you know, your energy consumption goes down. This will manifest as having just feeling like you have low energy, um, not being able to perform tasks that require stamina or anything like that. Uh, chronic deficiencies can cause somebody to, to gain fat and, and lose muscle. And so that would be something that, that you get from a lack of something in the diet. But the thing about these nutrients, whether they're the big energy containing nutrients or the little ones is you have to consume them, but they also have to make it through your system and get absorbed and put into your bloodstream and into the right cells for use. So you could, you could be functionally deficient in a vitamin because 
for some other reason. So maybe you're eating a normal diet that has sufficient B vitamins, but you could still manifest a B vitamin deficiency if there's something wrong going on somewhere where your cells are not using it right, they can't bring it in right. And what makes this very difficult to study uh, it, these chronic situations. So if, if somebody just literally is eating a diet where the doctor can tell, oh, you're not getting any B6, and then they can prescribe, you know, B6 supplements to the patient, and then the symptoms go away, that's fine. But when you look at something like um, a vitamin that's necessary for metabolism, and something that maybe we'll never know what caused it to go wrong will cause the particular uh, metabolism of that vitamin to get messed up, which will then cause other things and just a whole cascade of problems. So sometimes it's really hard to figure out exactly what's going on. Uh, it's the same thing with, you know, the macronutrients, like people say, Oh, I started, I changed my diet, and I gained weight, or I lost weight. And it's really hard to say that what they did, you know, exactly what happened in the body, you know, something changed and there was some kind of result. Um, they, they started eating less calories or they started working out and then they were consuming more calories. But on a real specific level, it's, it's almost impossible to say exactly what's exactly what's going on, um, in, in the context of a whole body system. Now, when people you know, they'll go on like a low carbohydrate diet. And then other people may go on a low fat diet, and they'll both have weight loss. Now that's an example of different, um, different reasons for the for the weight loss to occur. Um, if you hold calories very steady, usually in a clinical setting, the weight loss is the same, whether you move fat or sugar from the diet. Now, sometimes there's differences and people argue about that a little bit, but by and large, the as long as calories are kept the same, the weight loss is usually similar. But in free, what's called, you know, free living populations, so where, where the diet isn't controlled by how much they consume, but somebody is just given a diet where they consume, say, 100 or less grams of uh, carbohydrate per day or 20% or less of their calories per day from fat, something like that, you notice that the different things happen that may be causing these people in, in the free living populations to lose weight. And um, a lot of people have done work showing that if you cut out a macronutrient like carbohydrate, it changes the hunger and the satiety. So you'll become, if you eat a meal that's just missing carbohydrates or missing sugars, it'll, uh, you'll be, you'll be sated faster and, and you won't be hungry for longer. But if you were presented with a food after you were done eating that low carbohydrate meal that had carbohydrates in it, all of a sudden you would feel hungry again. And so it's not that your body has made some sort of fundamental change, but there's some kind of signaling in the brain for hunger and satiety that gets fiddled with. And, uh, and, and that's part of why, you know, people can lose weight cutting out this or that. You know, it's funny. You mentioned the carbohydrate and satiety, and I've been paying attention for the last several months to 
how I feel and what I eat and how I feel after that. And you know, we've had a couple of birthdays here, so of course we've had birthday cake because it's birthdays and why not? But I eat a slice of cake and all I really want is another slice of cake. And I, I remember reading in a book about salt that if you're feeling, boy, that sweet tooth is active, have something salty. Have some salami or pepperoni or kind of a salty cheese or even put salt on the cheese. And that it, it will stop the craving for the sweet thing and also return you back to that level of being satisfied. And now accepting that not everyone's the same, but f well, for me, that works. And I find that fairly interesting. And the salt part was interesting. And so you were talking about uh, vitamins and 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 actually micronutrients. So you and I have had uh, conversations about salt. And and I wrote a whole blog post about salt. And I learned that wow, there's like the stuff in the blue box that's nice and free flowing and never sticks and everyone uses is probably the worst thing you could have. Because while it does provide life necessary sodium, that's probably it. And there's up to 80 some micronutrients that you can and should be getting from a salt. So is, well, we don't want necessarily to provide all of those micronutrients only from salt. Is there enough micronutrients in the salt that we would add in a normal course of cooking to help facilitate a well, more efficient metabolic rate, metabolic function, something. Could be. It depends uh, what your diet is. And in times past, when when people had local diets, you know, in a in a non in a world without mass shipping, there it was a lot easier. Say, if you were a subsistence farmer somewhere, and the soil that you were using was you know deficient in something. Um, I mean, the soil in general these days tends to be deficient in magnesium. Uh, and there's some minerals that you just get, you just need very trace amounts like selenium or something. And you could be in a place that has a deficiency in something like that. And something like sea salt or, you know, a salt that has a lot of minerals that could, that could make a huge difference. Kyle, let me speak to the folks for a moment about fall feasts. D'Artagnan gourmet meat poultry and charcuterie is the website for truffles, game, wild mushrooms, beef and lamb, foie gras, and charcuterie. Whether for game time tailgating or a nice fall Sunday dinner, D'Artagnan has the proteins and garnishes you want for a great meal. Order already prepared products such as duck confit legs or truffle butter. Perhaps a whole free-range poussin with chanterelle mushrooms? Shop for a variety of gift packs or charcuterie platters for a variety of people. D'Artagnan also sells burgers and has a selection of recipe ideas if you get stuck. Use my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash D'Artagnan, or click the banner on today's show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 50. Now let's get back to the show. In our, in our context today, 
if you're eating a good diet, you're probably not too deficient in minerals. Although I've heard people make the argument that industrial large-scale farming has depleted the soil of magnesium in particular. And a lot of people advocate that you should, basically everybody should be taking supplemental magnesium. But other than that, um, you know, salt, yeah, but it may, it may be that the reason why salt is so important in the past, it was considered so important historically is because people, uh, not only the, the sodium chloride that people were getting, but that they were getting other things, um, that were very rare because shipment of foods from different places that might have the minerals that their soils missing was, uh, you know, technologically or costs or labor prohibitive. Right. Um, you mentioned a couple of times, I want to make sure I understand what it means. What is a high energy food? I just ate some (laughs) and it went down the wrong pipe. I hate it when that happens. Well, when I say, when I was saying high energy, I meant all of the, uh, macronutrients. Okay. So a container of Pringles doesn't qualify (laughs) as high energy food because it isn't really food. Well, it has, you know, it has the, um, it has starches and it has on the outside, it's coated with, uh, whatever oil is fried in probably some crappy seed oil and things like that of the very small amount of protein from are Pringles made from potatoes. I forgot. I I think at one point in existence, it was a potato. I think <laughs> I think what happens to it along the road, uh, it would be tough to actually identify it as a potato. I think I I I'm, yeah. I actually well, don't know. It's it's I, I don't really think I want to know. There's a yeah. There's a lot of energy in Pringles, but it does bring up another point, which is the oil that those things are cooked in. One, uh, one thing that's really bad for metabolism. So when I mentioned mitochondria everybody's favorite organelle from biology. The mitochondria has a membrane, um, two layers of membrane that are similar to the membrane around our cells or around bacterial cells. And, you know, it let, it kind of selectively lets things in and out. And these membranes are made with, uh, phospholipids, which are kind of like fancy fatty acids. They have something else attached to them, but they're mainly fats. Um, they're, they're like a, a fat that's been broken down and the little pieces are used to make this membrane and things get sequestered that way in the cells a lot because the cell is generally uh, a water like environment, a hydrophilic water loving environment. So if you have a bunch of things that are that are fats, you know how oil and water don't mix like in salad dressing, they will sequester themselves off. So mitochondria made this way and you've got this little zone this membrane and the fatty acids that it uses to make its membrane are coming either from your own fat production in your body or mostly dietarily and there's a big difference in the membrane function of saturated fats and monounsaturated fats and polyunsaturated fats and one of the actually mainstream areas of research right now is in mitochondrial dysfunction from too many polyunsaturated fats, which are the kinds in the industrial, like the seed oils, this, you know, soybean, soybean, Mm -hmm. fat flour, um, you know, all all that stuff, like corn oil or whatever, the stuff, the the, the cheapest stuff. 
yeah, that would be like in a salad dressing or, uh, you know, cookies that, that are cooked in some kind of oil that, that just the cheapest stuff. And they behave differently because when they're unsaturated and I, I think I, I think we talked about this last time, but they basically every, every, so, so a fatty acid is a, is a string. It's like a string of pearls and the pearls are carbon atoms and it attached to the carbon atoms are hydrogen atoms. So it's like a string of carbon atoms linked together. And then each carbon atom also has two hydrogens to the side. So it's like a string of big pearls and each big pearl has a couple little pearls. Uh, now that that's a saturated fat, fatty acid. Now in the unsaturated ones, one of those lengths in the chain of that string of pearls will have two connection points. So it'll have two strings between two of the pearls. And that causes there to be one less hydrogen, one, one less of the little pearls that are connected to the side of those. And because of that arrangement, it makes a kink in the molecule. Now, you might have noticed, everybody's noticed this, but highly saturated fats are get solid at a much lower temperature than liquid fats. So butter is very solid in the refrigerator. Room temperature, it's reasonably solid. And, you know, if you have it outside in like 85 degrees or something, it'll start to melt. <laughs> it's a pool. <laughs> um, but olive oil will be liquid at room temperature. And if you keep it in the fridge, it'll stay mostly liquid. It'll get kind of milky. Have you ever seen that? Yes. Um, and then, of course, if you put it in the freezer, it'll freeze. Now, something like a soybean oil, if you have it in the refrigerator, it doesn't get milky at all. And I don't know exactly what happens in the freezer, whether it stays solid or it gets milky or it freezes at zero at the freezing temperature of water. But the point is, uh, all these different types of fats, right? Whether it's um, coconut oil, all the different seed oils, the dairy fats, you know, butter and stuff like that, they have different melting points. And the two factors that influence those melting points are the chain length and most importantly, the unsaturation. So how many double bonds they have. And the reason that is, is if you imagine these chains and they're, they get packed together. So when you have a bunch of fat, it's a bunch of these fatty acids and they pack together and they don't like water. So they exclude water. And that tight packing is what we experience as solidity. And as you warm them up, they will release that tight packing and melt and flow. And that's what we experience as liquid, you know, same with water. Now, the packing that they do when there's a double bond or multiple double bonds in these, uh, in these fatty acid chains, it creates kinks, where when there's a double bond, instead of a single bond between some of these carbons, it makes like a, 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 a not quite a 90 degree turn, but a turn that's much more than in the other ones. They're not as straight. And because of all these kinks, they can't pack together as tightly. So if you can imagine like a nice neat row of like pencils or something, and they can all be uh, smashed right up against each other. Now just imagine that same, you know, a drawer full of pencils, but you've got, uh, you know, those like silly flexible pens. 
your kids ever have this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so imagine those like like uh, writing utensils that have a bunch of kinks, and not just in two dimensions, but in three dimensions. So so you couldn't orderly pack together the same amount in the same amount of space, and because of that, they will uh, release their tight packing with less energy, a lower temperature, and they will flow more easily. Now, if you're just talking about using a fat, cooking with it, whatever, that's just a practical issue you have to understand. You have to know the melting temperature of butter. You have to know what these things are going to do. But once they get into your body and into your cells, that difference, you know, that's a very powerful chemical difference that you can see with the naked eye, just taking one fat out of the fridge melts, the other one stays solid. That completely changes the behavior of the membranes of something like mitochondria in our cells. And throughout pretty much all of our evolutionary history, so our body makes saturated fat. So if you eat a very low fat diet, so you're consuming mostly carbohydrates and protein, your body will make fat because it'll need some fats. And the fats that it makes are overwhelmingly saturated and it makes a little bit of monounsaturated fat, which is uh, the kind that's predominantly in olive oil. So if you can imagine the human body in, in its normal state, if it has to make its own fats, it makes, you know, basically what like cow fat, you know, like, like a mm -hmm. butter, a little bit of olive oil, mostly, mostly solid at room temperature, which is convenient since we're warm blooded. We, we wouldn't want liquid, you know, fats flowing around in our bodies. So, uh, when you get these, um, and as well, the human diet, the, like the, the seed oils, the really highly unsaturated ones like soybean, those are very new, you know, like a hundred years ago, they were very, not much in the diet. And now they're the predominant fats people are eating. If people are eating processed foods, they're the ones that are used in processed foods. Like I said, uh, salad dressings, cookies and crackers you get at the store, things like that. Mayonnaise, unless you make it at home. So, uh, so when those fats get incorporated into the mitochondria, it changes the entire shape. You know, if you can imagine a bunch of these kinked uh, molecules where normally they're supposed to be mostly straight, just rod straight molecules lining up and, you know, occasionally a kinked one here or there. Well, now most of them are kinked or, or a large percentage of them are kinked. That will change the, the function and... The other thing that will happen is they can oxidize. And once you start oxidizing the fatty acids in these, uh, in these membranes, these energy producing membranes, then you cause a whole bunch of other problems. That's a really active area of research for heart disease, actually, is the mitochondria and heart cells getting uh, deranged and not being able to produce enough energy to uh, perform the rather important functions of the heart because their mitochondria are getting messed up. And it seems to be that they get messed up when they get these really long, very unsaturated fatty acids, highly represented in the mitochondrial membrane. Um, if you can imagine, you know, the, the difference in shape that you'll get from a really long thing that has a bunch of kinks in it, you know, every time there's a kink, it creates a new dimension of, uh, shape distortion, I guess you could say. Right. Um, it's like my garden hose. <laughs> so um, 
that that's one of the and that was one of the areas that I was really interested in researching when I was doing uh, graduate school because for whatever reason, it's just not a sexy topic how much the types of fatty acids people have consumed in the diet have changed in the past century. Um, there's a lot of focus right now, you know, like we talked about before on sugar, but there's been a, a real sea change in the type of fats that people eat. And that seems to be having a real effect on, you know, real basic aspects of metabolism, like the, the ability for the mitochondria to work at, at optimal capacity. That's a level of information I didn't know. And I'm going to tell you something that you and I are both are probably easily convinced of the misinformation on the interwebs. Mm-hmm. But when I was looking looking at some stuff, reading like the like a top ten things to know about metabolism, one of the and I, I'm not sure what it was, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was WebMD, and I'll I'll, I'll trash them. They made a very careful point of saying that saturated fats are unhealthy. Now, you and I have talked enough to, that I don't believe that that statement is an accurate statement. I've talked to some very well-informed, very well-read keto folks who also would say that that statement doesn't really bear any truth. So here, here's the conspiracy question. For the, for the person who's listening to this and saying, wow, I'm interested. I want to learn more about this. I'm going to go to my handy dandy interwebs and most of what they're going to find, there's probably a really good chance the information that person is going to read will be almost exactly opposite of what you've just talked about. So now here's the real problem. How, how does anybody know? What is the misinformation and what isn't the misinformation? And what do we do about that? Well, that second part is impossible to answer, but it, how I mean, I'm not even sure the first part is easy to answer because if you're, if you're presented with this, with this page of information, well, <laughs> the internet doesn't lie. Well, as it turns out, it actually does. Um, I don't, and, and this, maybe this is just me venting about the frustrations of interwebs searches and companies with a particular bias toward whatever they're, you know, just it gets into a whole murky yet <laughs> very legitimate world of, uh, of unpurposed misinformation. So maybe the better question is how, for the people who are interested in learning more about the kinky, <laughs> that's going to come out wrong, about the kinky fatty acids and the mitochondria and understanding why that's a problem in their diet, recommend a couple of good sources so people can get on the right page, literally, for some good oh, information. You know, that's that's tough. I I don't I don't really follow that many websites anymore. Um, you know, the internet wasn't bad for a while and it's still it's pretty good. It's better than say picking up a textbook and just reading or um you know an official source like government uh food guide information or like american heart association some of those some of those aren't bad it's you know those things are made by committee they're kind of like the climate assessment whatever the un does and there's people on there you know that know a lot of things and and but 
they'll they'll fight over the wording of a sentence you know like um as the as the narrative has changed in the research world about saturated fat there's a lot of people that do research or do like meta research and write about about science that have known for a long time that definitely the more hyperbolic statements you know like saturated fat causes heart disease or something like that people have known for a, a long time well over a decade that at the very least that's exaggerated if not completely untrue and maybe even completely the opposite but there's this institutional disconnect uh where you have to say things that have a certain level of um i guess support and it takes a really long time it's like trying to turn around a ship you know like an enormous big ship and the internet is very at least it was you know we're living through this period where things are really like the Googles and Facebooks and Twitters of the world are tightening the screws. So for the longest time, the internet was almost infinitely agile. So, you know, as soon as something would become, would come out, whether it's a, a piece of science or a new idea, you know, people are free to write about it and they're free to share it. So these different ideas about, oh, maybe, maybe, you know, butter, the cholesterol and the saturated fat and butter isn't causing heart disease. Maybe it's something else um, that spread on the internet like wildfire. And to the extent that those statements can be defended, it, you know, it's a sustainable sharing of information that people can learn. Um, actually, it, this is kind of timely. Just a few days ago, I saw a list. Did you see it going around on social media of websites that were, um, from Google searches that were privileged and deprivileged. Yeah, it, it was astonishing. Like, it was crazy, and I forgot what the top one. Was. Oh, there was some health ones, and and <laughs> so if you typed in that website, right. it would take you to the website. But how would you know that website exists? So if you're looking for top ten, top ten foods for heart health, it's going to nine. I think it was like ninety five percent demoted. Yeah, right. So yeah, so all a lot of the sites that were, um, you know, like natural kind of stuff or in the, the paleo sphere, basically alternative, what 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 you could consider, you know, call broadly speaking, alternative health sites were extremely deprivileged in search results. And more official sites like the Mayo Clinic, or, you know, institutions like government institutional or near government institutional websites were privileged. And so things are getting more difficult, but I think I, I, I do still think that people that are interested, because pretty much everybody knows about some of the different dietary movements, like the, the low carb thing. And I, I think if people are motivated, they can find information, um, you know, YouTube, people will talk about, you know how you can tell, uh, I'll give one blanket recommendation it, and it's not really a recommendation for anything specific, but if you can find a regular person and say, even like a professor talking about something and it seems like it's a person either writing about it or talking about it because they're interested in it and sharing information versus something that comes across as institutionally supported um 
then I I might take that more seriously. There's a lot of uh, it seems like what you know institutions are doing and and traditional media is they're starting to pour their resources into the internet. So something like YouTube, you know, there's these YouTube channels now where they just are television channels that just upload their content. And uh, that's going to continue to happen. But I think actually people are a little too smart for that. And of course, there's always going to be people, there were always people that were never going to find any of this alternative information for good or for ill, because they're not curious enough, and they're not patient enough, and they, you know, aren't smart enough or whatever to look around. So I, I think that there's still you know, a decent, um, I guess I don't know that many people that aren't aware of dietary information and that there's an alternative to say the thing that your doctor tells you. Maybe that's something, maybe if I was 20 years older, I'd have a lot of friends, you know, that were, oh, well, my doctor, he, you know, I've got high blood pressure and high cholesterol. So he put me on a statin and told me to not eat meat, you know, something like that. And they'll just take that as gospel. I don't really know a lot of people like that. So it, it's hard for me to relate in a certain way because I grew up in the generation right before the internet. So by the time I was a young adult, it was kind of, it was getting going a little bit. No, I understand what you're saying. And so I, I think when I think you're a little bit kind to ascribe to them a love, an absence of malevolence, uh, I, I, I think that they the American Heart Association and the foodplate.gov and, and, and even um, um, WebMD, which I just read something about them all being sort of a, anyway, sort of in cahoots with this misinformation campaign. Um, Nina Teicholz, who is a very vocal individual person about uh, about heart health with fats and butter and cheese. Right. Uh, she and she's been sort of uh, <laughs> nipping at the heels of the American Heart Association for a while. And there, I think it was the AHA's recent board is staffed almost entirely by vegans. <laughs> and when they come up with their report, they are going to in-house cross-reference it. So here, Frank, I just wrote this report. Tell me what you think. Oh, it looks great, Sue. <laughs> it's so the the name has some level of credential, but they they're working really, really hard to provide just negligent information. And and I think that that's I, it's pure politics, and it's at, at everyone's detriment who pays attention to that. But people who are just going to work, paying the bills, feeding the kids, who aren't aware that there's this this thing happening, who get on Saturday morning, they're going to go find out how can I have a better diet next week, and they go to one of these sites and they get all this wrong information. Well, it's from the government. It's from this. It's from this trusted source. It's from the American Diabetes Association. And what sane person is really going to question that? I, it just doesn't. That they're doing this and doing it sneakily is really irritating to me. And so, not to go into uh, the whole other interwebs lying to you thing, but there are a couple of web pages 
uh, search engines. Startpage.com is going to give you a result without all of the PC. Uh, one named after a kid's game, DuckDuckGoose, mm-hmm. DuckDuckGo, yeah. something like that. Uh, people are saying that they're finding positive results. And, and if you've been paying attention to social media, you have seen the uh, search window of Google and Bing and DuckDuckGo for Joe Biden. Right. <laughs> and it's like, well, you know, or, or the Hillary body, body count, body bag. <laughs> Um, so anyway, it, and then and then getting Hillary Clinton at the beach, Hillary Clinton and you know shoes. So I, I think that I think it probably is a I think it probably is a concern for people who don't know that they're being given possibly bad information and getting them on the right page. <laughs> <laughs> Put intended, getting him on the right page to get good information is is worth it was worth getting that information out there. I'm gonna get back to metabolism mm-hmm. just for a second here. From a metabolism point of view, since muscle tissue is going to it meta- I, I'm gonna be just colloquial, since muscle tissue metabolizes stuff mm-hmm. at a higher rate than fat tissue then just from that aspect alone, it makes sense for a human to engage in some kind of exercise. Now, I'm not saying you need to go be, you know, Arnold or, or a, you know, this crazy training eight hours a day athlete, but some physical activity, maybe even getting into the anaerobic level of, do, oh, I'm not sure push-ups will do that, but Herschel Walker, you know, did never, never lifted a weight in his life except his own body, mm-hmm. and Herschel was in great shape. So there's, it seems to me, a very strong case to be made for getting off of your chair and walking up the hill a couple of miles or... I mean, if you've got kids, wrestle with the kids on the floor. Do something to get the blood moving and increase that lean muscle tissue doing its metabolism. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, It seems like there's a kind of a set point for, you know, because there's a lot of interesting questions like uh, how does your body know what, you know, what's it, what blood glucose to keep it at, you know, or what temperature or what the energy, you know, how much energy do you consume in this process and that process? So we have a, this certain programming that all of these different rheostats going off at the same time, you know, a thermostat for body temperature and just stats for everything. And it makes sense that, um, you know, in the past humans had a certain level of activity higher than now. Uh, so it, it's not difficult to guess that having next to no physical activity would not allow, you know, the, the, some of the balances that we might need to keep, you know, the blood glucose going right in the right ranges, um, just, you know, disposing of things in the blood, metabolizing these different molecules at, at a rate that would be healthy to keep that going. Uh, you know, the same way as, you know, if you lock up um, a calf, you know, they, they do the, a veal calf, it's, its body's going to be different. So if people lock themselves up into a lack of exercise and movement, you can expect that your body's going to change. Maybe not, you know, you might not get fat right away when you're young, but 
something will be different. And yeah, lean tissue consumes, it almost makes you know, fat tissue, like I was saying, it's, it's not, it's almost negligible in terms of the metabolic rate. So somebody that is, you know, 500 pounds, but they would be 180 pounds if it wasn't for just all of that extra fat, their metabolic rate will not be all that much higher than a lean person who is, you know, about 180 pounds. So it's, it's the brain and then the muscle tissue and then the other lean tissues like the organs and stuff like the liver that, that really uh, are metabolically active and the fat tissue is hardly active at all. So yeah, if, uh, if you just want to eat more and you don't want to get fat, you, you know, to a certain extent, you could just put on a little bit of muscle, increase your caloric requirements and, That'll at least take care of that for a little while. Is there such a thing as having too high of metabolism? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, people people can be hypermetabolic. Um, that's that would be like say if somebody was hyperthyroid and their you know their heart rate was really high, um, and and they you could almost run a constant fever that way. It's pretty rare. Uh, some diseases will do that. Um, like people, you know, especially like late stage, certain late stage diseases will be very consumptive. Like you can imagine a patient where they, they kind of waste away. They get into this. I'm sorry to tell you, I don't need to imagine. That. Right. So they can get into, now there's, that could happen because the body switches over to a, a catabolic state rather than a anabolic state and the balance is broken. But it can also happen where the person, you know, will have a chronic, you know, almost fever and they'll just be kind of burning up. Um, and yeah, that's, that's th those, you know, that's not really too, too common. That would be the kind of thing that would be medically treatable. Um, a slow metabolism seems to be more more of a problem because it's not, uh, it's not really an acute problem, you know? So it's not something that can be studied acutely like that. But yeah, I think cats actually cat, uh, like house cats, they, they uh -huh. can tend towards hyperthyroid thyroid's another complicated issue. So that's one of the main regulators of your metabolism. And one of the problems with, with that is when your doctor you know, if you just get a normal blood test, like a blood panel, they will give you one test. There'll be one test for thyroid function and it doesn't really test thyroid function. It tests, uh, something called TSH, which is thyroid stimulating hormone. And it's the hormone that tells your body to make thyroid hormone. So it's one step removed and it's in a negative feedback relationship with thyroid hormone. So what that means is TSH will be made in the pituitary gland, circulates in the body, and when it gets to the thyroid gland, it'll stimulate that to make thyroid hormone. And then when the body makes thyroid hormone, the circulating thyroid hormone will negatively inhibit the pituitary gland. So they're in a kind of balanced relationship. If the thyroid starts to go down, the pituitary makes more TSH. And then as the thyroid turns up its thyroid production, it'll turn down TSH. So it's in a dynamic equilibrium. But the problem is 
there's other reasons that TSH could be high or low than just your thyroid function itself. So somebody could say be hypothyroid, not have enough active thyroid hormone in their body, but still have a normal range TSH. And that's just one of the problems that sort of the modern medical industry, I think the TSH test is much cheaper than the test for active thyroid hormone. Um, the, the full thyroid panel would be TSH and then also T3 and T4. T3 is the active thyroid hormone. T4 is a precursor that gets made by the thyroid gland, and then it gets further processed in the liver, and it lasts longer in the body. So the thyroid hormone makes a combination of active and inactive thyroid hormone, and the inactive is activated in the liver. Uh, and it's just kind of the way that it balances. So like if, if you're prescribed thyroid hormone, you'll get, you can look on the bottle and it'll say T4, T3, and it usually has a ratio. And I guess you know, normally they try to prescribe a ratio that's similar to what your thyroid gland itself is putting out. Um, but that, yeah, that that's one of those issues where a lot of people are probably hypothyroid or functionally hypothyroid. They could have a problem with liver conversion. So they might have enough T4. So if you just get your T4 tested, they'll say, oh, look, you've got plenty of that. But if it's not getting converted to T3 because there's some problem in the liver, whether that's a nutrient deficiency or something else, then you can end up being functionally hypothyroid. And it could take years to find out or never because for whatever reason, doctors just don't like to uh, prescribe those tests. I can't even begin to imagine why they wouldn't do that. Well, they have to justify it to the, I think it's an insurance company justification issue. When I was doing my uh, SALT article research, I came across some information, and I, I may get this part wrong because I didn't focus on it in the writing, but the thyroid and zinc. And uh, I think it was a problem more for women than for men, but a zinc deficiency causing a thyroid, well, I'll use the word deficiency or, or some, some inefficiency. And that turns out to be a fairly big problem. Was it, uh, was it zinc or was it iodine? Ah, probably might have been iodine. Like I said, I may have gotten the details wrong, but uh, there was one micronutrient. Oh, and that was iodine because the iodine salt thing. Um, but it's a big deal. And having a, a, a poorly functioning thyroid is not right. a good thing. Yeah, pretty much every mineral is – Yeah, if, if you get down to it, every mineral and every vitamin is necessary at some level for every function of the body. It's just that some – you know, certain functions are more linked to certain – of these nutrients, you know, so you'll get this symptom first before this one. But yeah, iodine, the, the relationship with iodine and thyroid hormone is that iodine ends up getting incorporated into the thyroid hormone molecule itself. So if you, if you're deficient in iodine, you can't make thyroid hormone at all. Cause what it is, is the thyroid gland takes iodine and sticks it onto the proteins, uh, onto the protein in, in specific locations that become thyroid hormone. So T4 is called T4 because it has uh, four iodines and T3 has three. So each molecule of, of thyroid hormone essentially consumes four or three iodines. And that's the main relationship there. So yeah, if, if you're completely deficient in iodine, then you can't make thyroid hormone at all. That sounds bad. Yeah. and And if you imagine, you know, Years and years and years ago, if somebody was landlocked, 
So that's the nice thing about, um, you know, there's so many reasons. I'm sure historically there's all kinds of anthropological arguments about why bodies of water, you know, towns and, and human civilizations, a lot of them were developed around bodies of water, whether it was an ocean coast or around a lake. But the nice thing about water and in particular the ocean is the minerals are more evenly distributed than on land. So I was talking before about how, you know, certain farmland may be deficient in this or that mineral. The ocean is like a big, everything's dissolved, right? So, so like if you have a glass of water and you drop a drop of iodine or zinc in there and swirl it around in a few seconds, all the water has zinc in it, right? And not in iodine because that's how uh, diffusion works. Now, if you imagine like a handful of soil and you put a drop of zinc or iodine on the soil and you shake it up, there's still going to be plenty of that soil that doesn't have that mineral. So, you know, before people had food shipping and uh, the ability to buy supplements or anything like that, if you lived in a place that didn't have, you know, for whatever reason, didn't have something in the soil, you could have a real serious problem very quickly. It's all fascinating stuff. Uh, one last quick question about metabolism. And I'm going to go into a little bit different tangent. If someone has low metabolism, so regardless, I'm, and maybe this is not, maybe I'm assuming too much. Let's see if we can exclude body size. Just someone has low metabolism. Is mm-hmm. is some level of physical activity the first easiest thing to do to raise the metabolism? And that, I guess, really the question is, I think I can answer it, why would we want to do that? So my answer is the reason we want to raise the metabolism is we want to increase the amount of energy extracted from the cells, which then makes the whole bodily function process more efficient. Yeah. Um, if somebody, so yeah, there's sometimes there's lean people, you know, somebody that is maybe hypometabolic would be somebody that's cold all the time. That's one sign of it, you know, somebody that gets cold very easily or their circulation isn't that good and their hands and feet get cold very, very easily. Um, or somebody that, uh, has low blood pressure as opposed to high blood pressure or very low heart rate. You know, people that if, if they get up quickly, they get lightheaded. Those, mm-hmm. those can all be signs of like a, a low metabolism, even if they aren't overweight, they're not gaining weight. Because um, on a certain level, even the ability to store fat is a metabolic process that people can, you know, their body can just not be doing at uh, at a sufficient level for it to matter. Um, yeah, the you, you definitely don't want that because pretty much everything having to do with health is linked to the metabolic rate. Um, when you look at like, there's one test, not a lot of people get it because there's not a ton of actionable information you can get from it, but there's a blood test that will look at, um, so, uh, so in addition to ATP, which I was talking about the energy currency, there's another energy currency that is, I guess you could say a little less, universal. It doesn't really leave the mitochondria during the process of energy production as much as ATP does, but it's called NAD and then NADH. 
So NADH, they're the same molecule. One of them has a hydrogen on it that has two electrons with it. And so that's the energized form of it. And then the NAD, which has a positive charge, so people call it NAD+, that's the de-energized, oxidized form of it. And if you have a high NAD to NADH ratio, that is one of the most productive, uh, predictive tests of just health in general, like longevity, lack of disease. And it kind of sounds like the opposite because the highly energized molecule is the NADH form, but it ends up that what it indicates, if, if you have excess NADH as opposed to the, the NAD, that indicates that your body isn't using as much energy as uh, I guess as you could be. So as that builds up and that ratio changes, it's very, very predictive of disease states in people. So even just outside of um, anything like weight, you know, these kind of more superficial things, the metabolic rate is, you know, another example is when people are in a disease state, their metabolic rate tends to be lower. Uh, when people are older, as opposed to when they're younger, their metabolic rate tends to be lower. So even if you're not having superficial changes like weight, the metabolic rate is uh, just something that's associated with uh, vitality in general. And and you don't want um, – it, it's also the ability to respond to things. So if you have something like an infection or some kind of stress on the body, uh, a high, higher metabolic rate will marshal the resources of the body faster than a lower metabolic rate. Since this is the Culinary Libertarian Show, I'm going to ask you some questions that we didn't get to last time because you just you had so much good information. I couldn't make you stop. I didn't dare. Um, of the five flavors, sweet, salty, bitter, sour, and umami, which one do you enjoy the most? Hmm. It's definitely between salty and umami. And I'm not... Like I've always been a salty snacks over a sweet snacks person. Mm -hmm. And my favorite foods are, they tend to be like um, definitely savory foods. It's hard to say. I do like East Asian foods and they mostly, you know, they tend to use the most umami. Right. So I might have to split the difference between those two. Okay. And since you have... Uh, foreshadowed my next question. What is your favorite food? Oh, okay. This is going to be a weird one. <laughs> but I have had... From the guy who ate raw fat, really? <laughs> I have had a relationship that I actually avoid them because... So it's a snack food. It's a potato chip. And it's a potato chip that's made, you know, just a regular company. Do you know the HERS potato chips? I don't think I do. Sounds like I they're, should. They're regional, and I believe they're from Pennsylvania. So if you live in Pennsylvania or New Jersey, they have them in Florida now, but they probably don't have them on the West Coast. Um, but it's just – it's a regional potato chip. Uh, you know, They have a bunch of farms that supply them with potatoes, and they have a flavor of spicy chips called Red Hot Chips. And I don't know what it is. I've been trying to find like a, a clone recipe so I could make my own. But it's some kind of spice powder that they put on the chips 
it's, it's got sugar and salt, you know, onion powder, garlic powder, some type of chili or paprika. And it's just the perfect amount of spiciness. And, uh, of course the problem is they fry them in these crappy oils. So I try to avoid them and not eat them that much, but to be perfectly honest, uh, <laughs> I think that they're one of my favorite flavors. Well, the struggle is going to be figuring out which of the very many peppers they're using for that for that spice. Yeah, and also the ratios, because they're fairly sweet for a savory, salty snack. It's definitely predominantly the salty, savory flavor that you get, hmm. but there's there's a significant sugar contribution and yeah it's like a it, it turns into a red powder that you can see on the chips and and they also they're not every bag isn't the same i guess just the way that they produce them and shake them up after after frying with the spice they're coated differently so sometimes you open up a bag and it just has a little bit of the spice powder on it and it tastes good but sometimes you'll crack open a bag and they'll just be coated in this in this powder <laughs> <laughs> that I love so much. And uh, it's, it's really a, a thing of beauty. That sounds like marketing genius. <laughs> you're, you're saying you see it as a fluke of production. I'm saying this is on purpose, but who knows? But that's it. It, it makes me want to find somebody to send me one. It's very interesting. Yeah, you should try them. What is your least favorite food? Hmm. As in the the thing that I've disliked the most that I've ever had, something like that, or or the thing that you flat out refuse to eat. Well, let's. There's there's you know I eat a lot of things. I don't I don't actually particularly like beets or sauerkraut, but okay. I've had the worst thing that I ever had that I will never eat again. Most people will never have the occasion to even try in the first place. But when I was in my raw meat eating phase. I had two particularly bad experiences and one was much worse than the other. I tried, so eating raw meat, you know, especially if you slice it nicely and put like spices on it, you make like a tartare, it can be very pleasant. But uh, when you get into things like organ meats, it can be extremely unpleasant. And I've had kidneys cooked. I knew it. I, I was, I was a heady. I knew it. <laughs> yeah. Kidneys are, I'm, I think they're difficult to prepare. I had a kidney dish in Nicaragua once that was prepared with a cream sauce. And whatever they did to it, it took a lot of the acridness out of the kidney. And I've also had them in traditional Chinese restaurants. Um, the kind, they usually cook them with like a chili oil. And they use like the Zichuan chilies and, and star anise and a bunch of other flavors. And those were very good. But yeah, one time I took a bite into raw beef kidney and <sighs> it was like concentrated urine inside of very badly textured meat. Like, you know how organs like liver, they, especially when they're raw, they have a, <laughs> a softer texture. Yeah. They just kind of pop in your mouth and it's very, yeah. So that was absolutely disgusting. And a close runner up was when I ate. Now, I like tongue, like at uh, Mexican places, you know, like in tacos, they use tongue a lot. But I didn't know 
uh, I, when I started cooking it on my own, I learned that you cook the tongue. A lot of people will boil it or something, and then you peel the white layer off. Yeah. So I had a package of raw tongue, and I took a bite, and I included the white, you know, uh, gland layer. Uh-huh. Mm. And the glands, uh, the salivary glands of this long since dead cow started producing saliva in my mouth. <laughs> so the flavor was- uh, For those of you who are driving, please, please, please keep paying attention to the room. Yeah, the flavor wasn't quite as bad as raw kidney, but the experience of, you know, swapping spit with a dead animal was a close runner up. I think your explanation is far more impressive than anything anybody's mind just created. <laughs> that's that's a story. I, I think you might win the prize for the best least favorite food story. That's nice. amazing. What gets you excited? Um, new ideas and probably, and anybody that knows me uh, is going to know this, arguing. <laughs> 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 no, really? <laughs> or or maybe politely putting it debate. Oh, either one's fine. Uh, what turns you off? Um, I guess when uh, people are not interested in new ideas or, you know, people, uh, a situation, a social situation where debate is looked down upon, you know, like if you're in a situation and you have an idea or you have something to say and you get that feeling in the air, like people aren't going to be interested or they're going to look at you like you're a bad person or um we're just trying to get out of here why are you why do you want to bring something up we're finishing business or whatever it is that kind of a situation is a big turn off for me like thanksgiving dinner time and everybody just sat down <laughs> yeah certain so what about that president trump <laughs> right right thanks kyle well, people, what sound some people carry around and you can feel it you know, well, some people can't feel it. And that's why a lot of people get accused of autism. But, you know, a lot of people carry around these sort of metaphorical bottles of nitroglycerin uh, uh, that you can feel that they have in their hand about certain topics. And there's just this unspoken thing between you where they they look at you or there's just an ambiance in the air where if you bring up a certain topic or even just... Um, talking about something, you know, like if it's diet or something that you want to, that you're passionate about, they'll just kind of threaten in a social way, you know, implicitly, not explicitly to dash that bottle to the ground (laughs) in an explosion. How dare you threaten my three by five card illusions? No, no. Yeah. That's, I I think everybody knows that situation regardless of, uh, Diet preferences, gender preferences, political affiliations, everybody knows that experience. What sound do you love? Sound. Uh, probably any sound that water makes, like falling water. Oh, that's a good sound. What sound do you hate? Um, I hate – oh, you know what I really hate? Uh, the default alarm sound for iPhones that people – like I guess older people don't know how to change it and – I, you know, I think that used to be my alarm sound and you know, the song, the sound that you wake up to kind of gets associated with like unpleasantness, you know, you get woken up by it and where I work for some reason, people, you know, it's in a, it, 
these they have these labs and they might be doing an experiment and a large amount of people will set their phones to alarm when they're they have to go get their experiment because it's finished and they use that tone I, I probably can't do it right but it's like do 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 yeah i know yeah <laughs> yeah i hate that <laughs> it's pretty bad and what is your favorite food indulgence okay well i can't do the chips again because i just did that so um i i think my fit you know i don't go out to eat all that much and I try to save it up. And in particular, you know, I was talking about traditional Chinese when I mentioned the kidneys. Um, have you mm-hmm. ever been to, I don't know what you call that cuisine, but the, the a traditional Chinese place, they'll have things like, you know, organs or they'll have um, tripe. Uh, they'll have, there's a, an appetizer I've seen in a lot of places that's a jellyfish. It's a cold dish, cold sliced jellyfish. Have you ever been to a place like that? I have not. Yeah, I don't know how widespread they are. I discovered them not that long ago. Um, a lot of times the menu will be in in Chinese or they'll give you like a an English menu and you'll look and you'll see there's like half the things that are on the Chinese menu for the people next to you. Because <laughs> they're really catering to, to real Chinese people. You know, it's not like... Um, general so's chicken or whatever uh but yeah those those authentic chinese places i love the flavors but it's a guilty indulgence because i know that they cook with those with a ton of these vegetable oils so i like to stay away from it but i have to admit that whatever they're doing with these vegetable oils and with the different ingredients you know they make tripe and kidney and um like chicken liver and the jellyfish dish and all kinds of things I love the flavors. It's interesting that I just realized I don't think of tripe and kidneys and Chinese food at the same time. When I'm thinking about tripe or, or any of the off-all meats, I'm thinking of provincial French. Now, that's almost entirely due to my culinary background being in classical French, so that makes some sense. But it makes perfect sense that the Chinese would, in fact, eat all of those things. It also makes sense that most Americans would never see them on the right. menu. Yeah. I think the first wave of, you know, I don't really know anything about Chinese immigration to America, but it makes sense that the, the, the Chinese people that wanted to make money selling a facsimile of their food to Americans basically, you know, Americanized their menu and created what we know of as American Chinese food. And, you know, that some right. of those dishes have their merits, but the extremity of the flavors, like the sauces that are used uh, in the more um, authentic places, they're, they're much more pungent. They're much stronger. You know, the smells are stronger. So I can see how some people get turned off. They're spicier, you know, so that's been toned down. And of course, yeah, the organs and, uh, you know, the the tripe and other intestinal, you know, stomach and that kind of stuff that they, they take that off the menu. But I love that stuff. I did. I don't know what it is, but um, I've, I've for years and years, ever since maybe adolescence, I've been pretty food adventurous. I remember when I was a kid, I had, I had some uh, food phobias or, you know, I was slightly a picky eater, but I grew out of it around age 10 or 11 and since then, I've been pretty, pretty wow. interested in, in 
you know what what what's out there. That's a pretty early stage to not have. Yeah, a well, food you know, phobia. actually, I I think I was afraid of tomatoes until I was like eighteen. <laughs> and I've heard. Well, I don't have that problem. I've got kids. They will. Um, my little one used to eat them green off the vine. <laughs> I got well. She didn't care. She didn't get sick. But I was right. really mad because I wanted them to turn red. Those are my cherry tomatoes. Stop eating them. I've heard actually that tomatoes are trigger foods for people. You know, there's people that uh, have that are picky eaters in a like a diagnosable way. Like they get diagnosed with whatever it's called, but it's like a real problem where like they have a, it's hard for them to, uh, I, I think I heard some like story about it on, you know, some podcast or something, but some people have, and tomatoes apparently are a very common food that these people are it's something about the texture. But yeah, I remember I had a problem with tomatoes for a while. And then I noticed that I was eating slices of tomatoes on things like burgers. And over time, my brain just, decided it was okay well that's good because tomatoes are great things they are uh for anybody who is interested in learning more about metabolism and diet and these things uh are there any 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 lay books that you can recommend for somebody who who wants to learn some more uh yeah i can um so my thinking about human health uh i'm in actually the the kind of people that I follow and that I agree with their stances, a lot of them call their perspective like a metabolic perspective, you know, as opposed to say somebody who's, who's like paleo or low carb. Um, and so that would basically loosely means that they, one of their first principles would be having a high healthy metabolic rate is good. So whatever kind of foods or lifestyle contribute to that would be something they would recommend. And, um, there's a, a particular scientist, his name's Ray Pete, but he's, he's an older guy, but he's been writing articles on websites and has this newsletter for decades. Uh, and he talks about this stuff. And there's a, a woman who wrote a book that um, sort of synthesizes a lot of those ideas into practical things that you can do. And I believe her name is Kate Deering, D-E-E-R-I-N-G. And her book is something like how to heal your metabolism. It's something, let me see here. Yes. How to heal your metabolism. And, you know, she's one of those people that she did a lot of, uh, I think she was a nutritionist and a personal trainer and she had some health problems after she had, um, you know, cause a lot of those people will kind of develop like a, do you know what orthorexia is? I do not. Orthorexia is when you have a restrictive diet or way of eating. You control your diet to the point where it's unhealthy, like how anorexia is not eating. Oh, okay. So orthorexia would be like, you know, you don't eat anything but whatever it is, you know, pick it. And to the point where it's obvious that it's hurting your health, but you're so um, – either phobic of the other foods or, or you just believe that, that your diet is healthy so much that you can't, you know, you can't let go of that. So a lot of, a lot of people that get into extreme health and fitness will develop these tendencies. And I think that she went through that and then discovered the perspective of, you know, eating foods, not restricting foods to lose weight and to keep your weight down, but eating foods that help stimulate your metabolism to keep yourself at a healthy weight. And then she turned that into a book. Cool. 
Well, that sounds like a good thing to start with. And I'm going to put the show notes page. I'm going to put links to those things on today's show notes page, which will be culinarylibertarian.com slash 50. And well, Kyle, this was fascinating. This is even more fascinating than I expected. And if I were 30 years younger, I'd consider, <laughs> I would consider going and learning about this uh, for a career. But I'm, I'm, I'm old and feeble, and so I'm going to have to rely on you to fill me in on the gaps. But thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. And have a great afternoon there in balmy Florida. And we'll talk again soon. All righty. Thanks. All right, folks. That's going to do it. Links to the resources mentioned will be at culinarylibertarian.com slash 50. Kyle mentioned Ray Peat, that's P-E-A-T, and there are some of his books on Amazon. They are very expensive. I'll put a link to a page with his books, as well as the book by Kate Deering, author of How to Heal Your Metabolism, which is the other author Kyle mentioned. As fall grows near, red wines become popular again. My affiliate, IWA Wines, focuses exclusively on products and accessories that enhance our wine experience. IWA is based in the heart of California's wine country, and they design custom wine cellars, manufacture cellar pro cooling units, and stock a wide selection of wine accessories, stemware, home decor, and gifts, from the simple and practical to the elaborate and luxurious. Click over with my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash IWAWine, to see the selection of bottle openers and stemware, wine coolers, or impressive wine cellars. Find the perfect gifts for the wine enthusiast in your life or for yourself. CulinaryLibertarian.com slash IWA wine. Have a good week and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.